This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today I'm sitting down with Krista Nelson, an associate here at Gimbel, Riley, Garen and Brown, who specializes in healthcare law. She has represented clients before the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services, the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families, the Wisconsin Department of Hearings and Appeals, Wisconsin State Courts, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Kristen is a very valuable member of our firm and always a friendly face to see around the office. Kristen also has an extensive amount of knowledge when it comes to professional licensing. You have a lot of experience dealing with professional licensing boards. What are some things that people need to be aware of that if it happens to them, they've got to tell someone? Not telling someone or not dealing with it only makes it worse. Um, If the department um, receives a complaint, they're required to investigate all complaints, no matter how crazy they are. And as a license holder, you have an obligation to comply um, with any investigation completed by the department or done by the department. What sort of things could turn into a, a tip that they get? Is it strictly criminal behavior or is there ethical behavior as well? It can really be anything. It can be um, criminal behavior, getting arrested for an OWI that is related to the practice of medicine or nursing or whatever your license is. Uh, It can be a violation of HIPAA, viewing somebody's healthcare records. It could be having a relationship with a patient. Uh, Any of those things are frowned upon by the department. Okay, so if I'm understanding, it's not just things that normally someone would think, oh, I'm in trouble. It's things that society would view as bad. Yes, exactly. So I think um, one thing is you watch something like Grey's Anatomy and you think it's perfectly (laughs) normal to have a relationship with your patient, and it's not. (laughs) I will say I am guilty of watching Grey's Anatomy, so (laughs) it's noted for all the doctors out there. Don't follow their rules. When it comes to the tip process, and you mentioned that the board has to look into any tip they receive, what happens once they look into it? When do lawyers get involved? Uh, What steps are taken next? An investigation is opened, and uh, they will then reach out to an individual and ask for their version of the events. Anytime a license holder is approached by the department, we recommend having an attorney be involved only because it's very easy to be emotional and just start spilling your guts Mm -hmm. and there are certain things they need to know and certain things they may not need to know. Let's say that the department moves forward and wants to initiate some sort of disciplinary action. Obviously it's different depending on what licensing board you're in front of, but what do these actions typically look like? Well, if they decide to move forward past the screening process, An attorney will be assigned as well as a liaison to the board, and they will review it and they will decide, does it rise to the level of professional misconduct? And if it does, it can be resolved in a multiple 
variety of ways. Um, it could be an administrative warning, which is non-public and it's a slap on the hand saying, we think maybe you violated something, but it doesn't rise to formal discipline. It remains in your file, but it's not public. So someone might know that you received one, but they won't know the reasons why. From there, it can go to a public education order, which is on the DSPS website, the Department of Safety and Professional Services. Uh, it could also be a reprimand with some type of monitoring order, whether it's education or depending on what is involved. It could be alcohol and drug screens, uh, required therapy, fitness to practice. From there, it can go to a suspension. Um, they may stay the suspension right away. It might be for a period of time, followed by a monitoring order. In extreme situations, it would be a revocation. How serious should someone take this if they learn that there's a disciplinary proceeding being initiated against them? Very seriously, because once again, there is an obligation to comply with any investigation done by the department. So burying your, hair, your head in the sand isn't going to do anything. What it will result in is possibly a complaint being filed and an automatic discipline against your license, and you'll have no say as to how it reads and what the outcome is. You have certainly been a part of many disciplinary actions, not against yourself, but <laughs> in support of clients. Have you noticed anything about the procedures or policies that you think could be changed to make it a more well-oiled machine? Right now, it's a hurry up and wait procedure. You know, the department will reach out to a license holder, ask for a response, and it's amazing because you would think that they would get some kind of response back within a couple of weeks. It can take anywhere from three months to six months. I think the record we've seen is almost two years. My understanding now, though, in speaking to our contacts at the department, is they're really trying to push these matters ahead. Um, and it depends on who is in charge of the department, how quickly are they responding, um, and how are they dealing with the individual cases. Once someone has some sort of disciplinary action taken against them, who do they have to tell going forward? Do they have to tell future employers? Um, do they need to make it known to HR departments? It depends on the license holder and what type of license they hold. And any application, um, they're going to ask if you've had any public disciplines. If you have a license in another state, you'll have to report it there because otherwise the department will do it for you. Um, it is available on the DSPS website under orders. Uh, if you hold a medical license, there could be an issue with your privileges and the credentialing board. Some employers do require that you notify them immediately of any adverse action. So it's understanding what your employee handbook says, the policies and procedures, and what type of license you hold. It sounds like there are a lot of steps to go into it, and it sounds like having an attorney could really help take some of the stress off of the practitioner. Absolutely. What I always like to tell clients is we take the emotion out of it and we take care of it for them so they can just move forward doing what they do um, and we'll take care of the rest. One of the things that has come to the forefront in pop culture these days is the idea of cancel culture. Within the legal system, I think it is pretty clear that cancel culture should not apply when it comes to 
criminal behavior, unethical behavior, you know, there's a real push to have people learn from their mistakes within the system. The problem is when you get outside the system that everyone shares that belief. What sort of potential effects have you seen either on clients or on other people in the community where they're faced with a one strike and you're out mentality? Well, it depends on what it is. If it's a situation where it's a reprimand, you know, I stress to clients, you're going to work again. And the further you get out from it, the better. Obviously, the board, employers, society likes to see if you're learning from your mistakes and you're taking steps so that it doesn't happen again. Because really what the department is charged with is protecting the public. So they want to know that there are going to be no issues going forward if you are given a license and you're able to practice. And despite the opportunity that some practitioners get for second chances, third chances, there is a chance of having a disastrous effect on the career if someone involved takes to social media and the news picks it up. Walk us through a little bit of how that can affect clients and what's their best course of of strategy to react to that. To not say anything, to not respond. Nobody wins in a Facebook war. Uh, Trying to get your side out can always be twisted. Speaking to the media is never a good idea because they're going to pick, the media will pick up what it wants to pick up. So the best thing, once again, is to have an attorney involved. If by some chance they believe it'll be beneficial to respond to the media, they will on your behalf. But once again, we'll take the emotion out of it and just provide what is only needed. But usually the best course of action is to not say anything. What should people understand if they're given a second chance? How careful do they need to be moving forward? What sort of actions can they take to protect themselves? Depending on what the violation is, you need to really make sure you're following the rules. A lot of times, um, if it's an alcohol and drug problem, uh, you're going to be under a monitoring order from the department. And what a monitoring order is, it's required drug and alcohol testing, it's supervisor reports, it's reports from your counselor or your therapist. And you're required to abide by those conditions. Um, And if you're not or you think that it's not fair, that's not a reason. So you really need to appreciate the second chance that you've been given and follow those guidelines that have been put in front of you. Do you think that the department ever gets to a point where cancel culture does kick in, where they say, this person has had four chances, five chances, we just can't do it anymore? Well, what we've seen and what I'm seeing more of recently is individuals who are diverting narcotics from hospitals. Uh, If you're terminated from multiple hospitals, they may not allow you to continue practicing until the case is resolved. What they might do is enter an interim order where you agree not to practice in your field. In really serious cases, they may do what's called a summary suspension, which is your license is suspended until the resolution of the case, and there's really not a lot of things you can do once that's done. Do you think that the seriousness with which the board is taking narcotics diversion has to do with 
the war on drugs or the opioid epidemic, do you think that there's an interplay between those? Definitely. Um, there's also, it goes back to patient safety. Uh, one of the things that we've seen previously when there was a diversion issue is uh, you could go into the professional assistance procedure program, otherwise known as PAP, and that might prevent you from getting a public discipline. Now, depending on what that diversion looks like, you might be facing a reprimand with while being in the PAP program. Mm -hmm. However, that's better than facing a suspension and a monitoring order. So, I think it's also important for uh, medical personnel to be aware that it's not just the board that they could face, but especially in opioid-centered activities, it's the criminal justice system too. Absolutely, and that's where there are so many different landmines you need to navigate when you are faced with a criminal charge. Not only is it a licensing issue, but once again, depending on your license, if you have privileges at a hospital, it can affect that. It can affect the National Practitioner Data Bank. Um, it can also affect your DEA registration if you hold that. It can also, and what we're seeing more and more of lately, affect your ability to build Medicare. You could be placed on the exclusion list which that is you will not be able to work for a healthcare facility that bills Medicare or Medicaid. And that they are very harsh. It can be a mandatory exclusion for five years or it can be discretionary. So. I think one thing that is important to point out is even though these are extremely serious circumstances, not all, all hope is lost once they come out of the situation. Absolutely. We have plenty of clients that we have helped over the years, and maybe they went into the PAP program, they successfully completed it, and they are now doing great. Maybe they've been under a public monitoring order, but once again, they're abiding by the conditions, it's been discharged, and they're doing great. So all hope is not lost at all. The most important thing it goes back to is you definitely want an attorney involved. And absolutely, if you are a license holder that has a criminal action pending against you, hire a firm, hire a criminal attorney that understands those licensing implications because otherwise you may find that you've negotiated, for your, your attorney has negotiated what you believe to be a great resolution, but it turns out it can be even more damaging to your license. A majority of what we've talked about today has been centered around the healthcare field, and I know that's your specialty but you also represent some attorneys that find themselves in undesirable situations as well. Can you talk a little bit about the similarities between going in front of the Office of Lawyer Regulations and going in front of the Department of Health? Both of them are administrative proceedings. Both involve that type of law. So it's not a situation where it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Instead, once again, I think for lawyers, healthcare professionals, it becomes very emotional, and it's understandably so. So once again, you want to have an attorney involved um, to help represent your interests, to take the emotion out of it. They want to hear from you that there were no violations of the Supreme Court rules, um, misconduct of any kind. It's competency that they look at, as well as communications. Um, are you a zealous advocate for your client? They want to know that you've done everything that you can. Once again, 
An investigation is open. The attorney will hear from the investigator, and that's at the screening process, and that's just an information gathering um, stage. If at that point they believe that maybe there is some credibility to that, um, it goes on to be assigned to an attorney and a case advisor, and they're going to look to see if there was any violations of the rules. From there, it can, once again, you can get a private reprimand, which is different from uh, Department of Safety and Professional Services because that would be probably more of an administrative warning at that level. It could be a public reprimand, it could be education. There are several different ways that it can um, show itself. I will say for attorneys as well as healthcare professionals, it's very easy to file a complaint. Um, and for attorneys it's hard because you have a client that's not happy with an outcome and it's a very easy way for them to voice how they're not happy. Mm -hmm. Something that I think a lot of people not involved in the legal system might be surprised at is that attorneys need attorneys too. Correct. Absolutely. And you just don't want to be representing yourself. Uh, it's easier to have somebody take an objective look at the facts um, and provide a response for you. And once again, if you have an attorney that's experienced in dealing with these different agencies, they have the relationships, they have the understanding of what are these investigators looking for in order to close a case. Beyond healthcare practitioners and attorneys, you really deal with the whole spectrum of licensing requirements and you also deal with childcare services. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes into representing someone involved in childcare? Those situations tend to be a little bit trickier because for a child care provider who has a license, they have a relationship with their licensor. They come out, they will almost always find violations. And a lot of times child care providers don't know that they can respond or challenge those. And instead, they accept them. And then that ends up being used against them down the road if there are more violations. Uh, with the revocation process, a lot of times we don't see clients after a license has been revoked. It's still not too late at that point. Um, what I have found is if you can start negotiations with the department and work through it, there have been times, more often than not, we've been able to find a resolution that allows a provider to keep their license. There are situations, however, where it's very easy almost to get a child care license and it's very easy to lose one. So understanding what all those laws are um, is definitely important, all those rules and regulations. Some people might confuse what you do with licensing and medical malpractice. And I think that's an easy confusion to have given how lax the public seems to be with the term medical malpractice. We definitely do not represent clients that are trying to sue healthcare providers for malpractice. That's really not our area of expertise. We also tend to focus more on the licensing part versus the actual malpractice portion. Um, however, depending on what it is, under the Wisconsin statutes, healthcare providers, specifically physicians, um, have an obligation, and by physicians, I also mean dentists and podiatrists. Mm -hmm. They have an obligation if they know that somebody is harming a patient or practicing under the influence to report that to the department. A failure to report that and allowing a practitioner to continue to practice that could cause patient harm is a violation. So 
there are several avenues around that and helping license holders understand. Uh, but if they are looking for a malpractice representation on the defense side, usually we do refer that out. One thing that has become apparent through all of your answers is if someone whose livelihood through their job, through their license is on the line, the sooner that they can get an attorney involved, the better. Absolutely. I used to work actually on the prosecutor side when I lived in Illinois when I was in law school. And you know, I understand how it works, mm-hmm. and it is amazing the difference in how a case is handled when an attorney is involved when an attorney is not involved. It's time for the definition of the day. Today we're going to dive into professional conduct. You mentioned that that seemed to be the standard when dealing with licensing. Can you explain to the listeners what is professional conduct? Well, for professional misconduct, Mm -hmm. it is really anything that's related to the practice of medicine. But there also is dishonesty in character. That is one. giving false information, not being honest on an application, not reporting adverse actions, uh, not reporting that you have a criminal conviction within 48 hours of that conviction being entered. Um, There's direct patient care violations. I think I mentioned having what's called a dual dual relationship with a patient, so being their healthcare provider as well as being in some type of romantic relationship or even really friendship. Um, we recommend keeping the two completely separate. Uh, there's also uh, diversion, controlled substances, and uh, not administering it in the right way. One thing we see a lot with nurses in particular, because they're the ones that are administering, administering the medication, is wasting in a proper time amount because when a medica- when medication is given there might be some left a lot of hospitals have policies where you have to waste in a certain amount of time we all know how overworked nurses are these days and how they're stretched to their limits mm-hmm. so sometimes not being able to waste it in a proper amount of time can result in um, an action by the hospital and termination there's also nurses they put something in their pocket think they're going to waste it later they leave the premises all of a sudden they're um, accused of stealing narcotics. Mm-hmm. So it's anything involving the administra- administration, dispensing, um, wasting of any type of narcotic can be an issue, um, as well as uh, any kind of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned in there that not correctly answering different applications can have an adverse effect and can be deemed mm-hmm. professional misconduct. The One of the things that I've learned through my practices as a criminal defense attorney, I always ask if there's any sort of licensing on the lines, mm-hmm. and then I bring in, in you or your colleague, Pat Knight. Thank you so much, Kristen, for sitting down and talking with us. I think that that ins and outs of professional licensing are very tricky and you are definitely a great resource to guide people through that. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. This 
week, we're going to get to know paralegal John Gowdy. John has over 28 years of paralegal experience working in the areas of plaintiff defense personal injury, workers' compensation, privacy and compliance, criminal defense, and state and federal regulatory compliance. John has been highly involved in the Paralegal Association of Wisconsin since 1987 and currently serves the association as board advisor and co-NFPA representative for this year, as well as chair of the Professional Development and Public Relations Committees. John also serves on the board of directors of the American Alliance of Paralegals and is currently serving as the president of the organization. John is one of my go-tos when I need something to get done quickly and I am very excited to have him on today. As I noted, John, you've been here for quite a long time and you are kind of the jack of all trades at the firm. Kind of. Kind of. You tend to work with pretty much every attorney here, is that right? I have. (laughs) Maybe not family law. Maybe not family law, but pretty much it's whoever calls you is who you're going to work with. Correct. Outside of work, though, you are part of a club that I'm very jealous of. You have a movie club. We do. And who's all in this movie club with you? Uh, It's one of the clubs in our neighborhood association. So there are a variety of neighbors. We have probably 12 um, couples, you know, who participate on a regular basis. That's great. And how often is a regular basis? How often does it happen? I think we do it generally every two to three months. It kind of depends on the schedule. Um, it's changed a lot with COVID, so it's now Zoom mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, in the past, when it started, uh, we would actually get together and go see the movie uh, in the theater, and then we go out and eat and drink and you know, discuss the movie that we had just seen. And, but now it's become a virtual thing, so we see the movie in advance, and we prepare the outlines of the movie, and then we get together on a Zoom meeting and with a glass of wine in our hands and participate that way. What's the f- best movie that you think you've seen through the movie club? It's hard to remember all the ones. Um, we are, the one we are now coming up to doing uh, is going to be The Dig. Okay. So that's the next one we're doing. Uh, we just got done doing my favorite, which was my choice, because we were doing a Western genre. Uh, we did The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> nice, nice. Here's a tough one. Are there any movies that you've seen through the club that stick out as particularly bad? Um, yes. <laughs> so bad that I can't remember the title of it. <laughs> but I remember at the time, oh, uh, I can't remember the title. But it was the one just before the Western that even as a group we went, oh, that was just disgusting. And not anything that anybody would ever want to see again. But off the top of my head, I can't recall the title of it. Well, I really enjoy that the club has the honesty is the best policy. Yes, we do. How long have you been a part of this group? Probably 15 years. And it's through your neighborhood organization? Yes. That's awesome. And we've been in our neighborhood for 30 years. Uh, and the movie club formed uh, probably about 15 years ago. It's been going on a long time. You might have already said this, but how many of your neighbors are involved? 
I think we have about 15 uh, families. You know, it's generally just the couples um, that participate on a regular basis. Great. Well, thanks, John, for sharing that little tidbit about yourself. Like I said, I'm very jealous of the club, and maybe one day you'll let me in. Yeah. <laughs> you don't live in the neighborhood. <laughs> maybe I'll move well, just to be in the club. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode where we talk about initiating divorce proceedings with Richard Riley. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.